Uh, so yeah, we're, we're talking about prayer, and uh, I've got to say that I found prayer to be one of the great uh, mysteries of the Christian life. Not that I've been living the Christian life for a long time, uh, but for a reasonable amount of time. Uh, it's a real mystery. It's a bit of a paradox. Uh, the paradox is that I know that I should pray more, uh, and on some level I really want to pray more, but most of the time I don't. And it's sometimes hard for me to work out. I don't know if anyone can resonate with it. You, you, kind of, you know you should pray more, you want to pray more, uh, but most of the time you don't pray more. Why is that? Well, why is it uh, that so many of us uh, struggle to pray? Well, I think most of the time our prayerlessness can be traced back to one of three things. Right here, here we go. I mean, there may be other things, but I reckon these are, these are three of the main factors. First, uh, we've got a kind of distorted picture of who God is. It's not quite clear on, on who God is. Uh, Second, we've got a distorted picture of ourselves, of of who we are in in relationship with God. Uh, And third, we've got a distorted picture of what prayer is. What is it that's actually going on when we pray? Uh, So as we look at this passage from Matthew 6, I'm going to try to bring some clarity around those three things. But but the first kind of stake that we have to put in the ground uh, is that even though we all struggle to pray, Right, we're card-carrying people who struggle with prayerlessness. Jesus, he just doesn't let us off the hook. And if you look at verse 5, it's clear that if you're a Christian, you're one of Jesus' disciples, uh, you should be praying. But Jesus says, and when you pray. But his assumption is that his disciples, the people who are kind of already citizens of his kingdom, remember he's talking to his disciples here, uh, those people will be praying. And when they pray, Jesus says, and that makes sense. So just practically, if prayer at its most basic level is about talking to God, uh, it's hard uh, to have a functional, let alone fruitful relationship with God if you don't talk to him. That's what prayer is about. Imagine if I I took that approach with my wife, Gabby. I kind of say to her, Gabby, I love you. I need you. I want to be in relationship with you. I really value our relationship. I treasure it, in fact. I just don't want to talk to you. That relationship wouldn't be overly functional. It certainly wouldn't be fruitful, would it? Because functional and fruitful relationships involve talking to one another. It's the same with the relationship with God. We listen to his words when we open up the Bible and we respond to his words when we talk to him in our prayers. So Jesus assumes that his disciples will be talking to God. They'll be praying. Baseline assumption. Uh, But he also makes it clear that it's not enough to simply go through the motions of praying. But actually, going through the act of praying isn't sufficient, but because it's quite possible, Jesus says, to pray in a way that does not please God at all. So Jesus points us to two ways of praying that just, well, they're just not Christian. They're not in line with being a part of Jesus' kingdom. First, in verses 5 and 6, he says, don't pray like those religious hypocrites. Right? If you look at verse 5 there, you'll see that at first, these, these hypocrites sound like wonderful people. Look there, they love to pray. Like, how godly. How, how, I mean, these are, these are, isn't it? They love to pray. The only problem is they don't love to pray because they love God, do they? They love to pray because they love themselves. That's why they always pray in public. You see that? They pray in synagogues, on street corners, because they want to be seen by others. They're hungry for the spotlight. And they see prayer uh, as an opportunity to flaunt the, 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 the full range of their prayer skills. So other people kind of say, yes, well done. 
What a wonderful prayer. You know, it's an impressive prayer. Well done. That's what they're after. They want to be seen by others. I see, maybe you'd think that perhaps this would go without saying, but what Jesus is really driving at here is to pray as a Christian, uh, is to offer your prayers to God. That's what prayer's about. Like, you're praying to God. You're not praying to yourself. You're not praying to impress other people. You're actually offering your prayers to God. So what about you? Right? When you're praying at church, in a cafe maybe, in a Bible study, one-on-one with someone else, uh, what, are you, what are you really focused on? Are you more concerned about what other people think of you? Am I, am I saying this in the right way? Am I, am I kind of biblically correct, theologically correct? Am I, am I impressive enough? Or, or what do people think of my prayers? Now, it's important for our prayers to be in line with God's word. Don't get me wrong. But if you're consumed with those things, about, if you're more concerned about what other people think of you than what God thinks of you, you're a bit more like this religious hypocrite. That's what Jesus is saying. You've slipped into this mindset. In your prayers, you're not focused on God. You're focused on yourself. You're consumed with yourself and what other people think of you. And now it's not that Jesus has an issue, has a, a kind of inherent issue with people standing up to pray. That's how Jews normally prayed. Nor does he have an issue with people praying in public. Read through the Gospels and you'll see Jesus praying in public. The problem here isn't the the outward acts of standing up to pray or or praying in public. The problem is what's going on in the heart. It's that these people are praying to be seen by others. And notice what Jesus says. He says, if your main longing in prayer is to be seen by others, to, to get the approval of others, to get the acclaim of others, well, you'll get that. I truly, I tell you, he says, you will receive your reward in full. You long for the approval of others and that's what you'll get. At least for a moment, of course, until you have to put on your next prayer performance. Then, then you have to go through it again, right? But Because you might not be as impressive that time. Right, but for the moment you have your reward in full, Jesus says. So how should Christians pray differently? That's verse 6. Have a look at verse 6. Jesus says, uh, we're to go into our room and close the door. But that's not just about kind of cutting out outside noise. It's being away from the eyes of others who might be, you might be tempted to try and impress with your prayers. That's the point. So that you're really clear that the only person watching you is God. It's an audience of one, not an audience of many who you might be trying to impress. And so once you're in that room where, where you're, you're praying just to God, uh, you're praying to your Father, and Jesus says you're ready to pray to your Father in heaven who is unseen. I was thinking about this during the week, and I was thinking this is actually, I mean, I think it's relevant for everyone, uh, but I was thinking that in some ways it's particularly relevant for me as a pastor. And when you become a pastor, all of a sudden you become a more public person. And there's something right about that. Like, like people ought to be watching me and my example, the things I say and do. I should be an example to the flock. Uh, but the trap of that uh, is that I spend lots of time doing public ministry, public praying, one-on-ones, meetings, small groups in church. Uh, and so for the trap for me, uh, the trap for me is that I keep churning out public ministry, public prayers, prayers that are seen by others, uh, but while in private, my prayer life might be struggling. 
So, so I've slipped into kind of the performance of prayer. Praying to be seen by others rather than praying to be seen by my Father in heaven. So, so I've really got to go out and guard my heart against that. But I, I, I wonder about you. But here's the test. I wonder if you find yourself being okay with praying in public. Or when the opportunity's there in your gospel community, maybe, some other context. You really don't mind praying in public, but you don't pray much at all in private. What does that say about who you're really praying to? Why you're praying? What you really want from prayer? Are you acting like you're praying to God? But really, you're, you're kind of praying to pump up your ego. To be seen, so, so that you can show your biblical knowledge, your theological knowledge, to be impressive to others. Jesus says that that's not really Christian prayer. That's the prayer of a religious hypocrite. It's not even really prayer directed to God. It's for you, it's for other people. But notice Jesus' assurance, right? He says that, that when we do pray for, to God, right, for an audience of one, not to be seen by others, but to be seen by our Father in heaven, right, when we do that, we'll be rewarded with something much greater than the, the, the fleeting approval of some person. Right? The, the word Jesus uses for room here in verse 6, uh, it refers to the innermost room of a house. And I've got to remember that in this culture, they didn't have banks or they didn't have other places where they really store their valuables. The place they stored the family treasures, the valuables, was in the innermost room of the house. So Jesus is making a point here, right? He's saying that when you go away to pray in secret, you might be tempted to think that somehow you're going to miss out. You're missing out on that great treasure of being impressive to other people, of getting their acclaim, their applause, their approval. Like, I'm missing out on that. There's no one else watching me. But Jesus says you're not missing out. Right? When you draw near to your Father in heaven in secret, it's like there's hidden treasures waiting to be discovered. Knowing the approval and love and care, not just of some person, but of your Father in heaven. You must never think you're missing out if you're offering your prayers simply to your Father in heaven. Let's be clear. Jesus is not saying that all your prayers should be in secret. No more praying. From now on, no more praying in a cafe, in your Bible study. If anyone else is there, no more praying in church. Like From this day forward, actually, Jared, you're rostered on later on in the service. No praying. All our prayers must be in secret. Jesus is not saying that. But he is saying we have to watch our motives in prayer. Don't be like those religious hypocrites who act like they're praying to God, but really they're praying for themselves and others. Right, second, uh, in verses 7 and 8, Jesus says, don't keep on babbling like pagans. Although that word pagan, it simply means anyone who's not a Jew, really. So in this passage, right, we've got the kind of religious Jews, right? They're like the conservatives on the right. And then we've got the irreligious pagans, right? They're the more progressive types, uh, they're the kind of spiritual types. They've rejected organized religion, right? But they're, like, they're, they're the progressives on the left. And Jesus says these pagans uh, just babble away in their prayers, right? Their prayers are full of words, uh, but they're really mindless words. You see, these pagans somehow think that, that God's more likely to hear and answer their prayers uh, if they can just switch off their minds and go with their spirits, 
I don't know, that's the idea here. Just kind of overflow where with torrents of words, kind of formulas and chants and, and little prayer riffs. That's the idea these pagans have. And Jesus says in verse 8, don't be like these pagans. Why is that? Because Christian prayer is not about disconnecting your mind so you can enter into some kind of ecstatic spiritual state. That's not Christian prayer. That view of prayer treats God like he's an impersonal and mindless force. It says to you, if you want to connect with God, you've got to get yourself into an impersonal and mindless state where you're just kind of babbling away. Perhaps you don't even really know what you're saying. And maybe this will be a bit controversial, but let me say up front, I'm not what some people might call a cessationist. Right? I don't believe that, that the spiritual gift of speaking in tongues has ceased altogether. Right? Ceased, that's where, where the term cessationist comes from. That, that, I don't believe it ceased. But I do think that in some churches, the, the, the way the gift of tongues is expressed is a bit more like this. But the aim seems to be to get people into such a spiritual state that they've switched off their minds and they're not really conscious of what they're saying anymore. At least that's my experience of it. But where that is happening, I think Jesus would have some questions about it. It sounds a bit more like connecting with a mindless and spiritual force than a personal father. But in case you kind of think I'm picking on just our Pentecostal brothers and sisters, let me say that our prayers right here in our own church can be just as mindless, can't they? Well, we don't have much kind of formal liturgy in our service. Like, like we don't kind of generally read prayers out of a prayer book, for example. But we can still be mindless in our prayers. Kind of babbling away with Christian formulas and jargon and cliches uh, that we really don't think about anymore. It's kind of roll off the tongue. Is our mind engaged? I don't know. We're saying a prayer, but, you know. But Jesus says, don't pray like that. I don't pray as if God is impressed, as if he can be manipulated by the, the kind of mechanics or formulas or, or even the statistics of your prayer. Oh, that person prayed 300 words in two minutes. I'll listen to that prayer. Like That's not the God we pray to. He's not manipulated by the impressiveness of our words, a torrent of words. That's not who we pray to. Look at verse 8. We pray to our Father in heaven. He knows what we need before we even ask it. We don't pray to a God who's ignorant, so we've kind of got to instruct him in our prayers, tell him what's what. And we don't pray to a God who's hesitant, so so we've got to manipulate him in our prayers. No, we pray to our Father in heaven who loves us and knows us and is eager to answer our prayers for our good. So our prayers shouldn't be kind of mindless repetition of words like these babbling pagans, uh, nor should they be a means of glorifying ourselves like the religious hypocrites. Our prayers should be a a personal encounter between a child of God or the children of God uh, and our loving Heavenly Father. And that's what Jesus unpacks in verses 9 to 15. what, 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 What might that encounter look like? What does it look like for a child of God to pray to their Father in heaven? It's what's commonly called the Lord's Prayer. Dan was talking about it. And it's completely fine to recite this prayer as we did at the end of the kids' talk. Uh, but Jesus gave it to us, not, not so much so that we could constantly recite it, right, mindlessly. Right? 
He gave it to us to, to be a template for the kind of things that should shape our prayers as Christians. So you can see I want to talk about uh, our God, our longings and our needs. Three different aspects in this prayer. First, what does this prayer teach us about our God? Uh, the God we pray to. Uh, Jesus says we pray to our Father in heaven. Right? This is foundational. Right? As Christians, our God is our Father. When we pray, well, we're not relating to some impersonal spiritual force where we're having this relationship with our Father in heaven. And now, now I know for some of you, you've had very ordinary fathers. Perhaps they were apathetic or abusive or even hostile. So this whole idea that the God's your Father in heaven, you struggle to connect with that. It doesn't really work for you. It's not that encouraging to kind of inspire prayer, right? So, so you've got to remind yourself that your Father in heaven is not like your earthly father. Not at all. He created you. He, he chose you to be his child before the foundation of the world. He bought you with great, at great cost to be his. The blood of his one and only son shed on the cross that you might be cleansed of your sin and adopted into his family. That's how much it meant to him for you to be his child, So when you pray to God as your father, be assured that he knows you, he loves you, and he cares for you. He actually cares for you. He cares for you. I was thinking about this during the week. Uh, Some of you know I have two children, Ada, uh, she's four. Uh, Charlie is uh, 18 months nearly. And I work from home, we have a kind of study at home. Uh, and uh, it's not uncommon at all for the kids to kind of come bowling into my office uh, because they're excited to share something with me. You know, that they've found an exciting uh, leaf on the ground or something, or Ada's had a trauma of kind of some skin coming off her knee, or, uh, and, but she's eager to share it with her dad, right? And I was thinking about that. I mean, that, that's, that's what prayer is, isn't it? We'll talk in a minute. It's not as simple as child to father quite like that but mostly I think my kids feel pretty secure to bowl into my office they know that I love them that I care for them and they're eager to just share their stories with me to talk to me about what's going on in their lives and that's wonderful I think it's a great joy for me and and often uh, the 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 stories they're telling Ada's telling you know it just doesn't make that much sense I'm trying to work out what she's stammering away. She's trying to learn the language still. I don't care. I just delight in the fact that she was eager to come and talk to me. But that's what, that's what it's like with us and God. Isn't it? He's delighted when his kids, when we come to him as, as his children to share our prayers. And he wants us to come boldly and confidently, secure that he's our father in heaven who, who cares for us. And of course, he's not just any father. Right? He's not just some pastor of a church in Thornbury. Uh, he's your father in heaven. Whether that's not a comment on, on where God lives, it's like his address is in heaven, right? If you want to send him a letter or something. No, no, it's, like, it's telling us what God's capable of. Right? Our father in heaven created all things. He rules all things. He's capable of all things. So we've got to remember these things, right? It's not just that your father cares for you as his child. It's that nothing can stop him doing what is good for you, what is best for you as his child. Nothing. If your heavenly father wants to do something for you, he does it. He's capable of all things. It's not like the the friend who cares for you but can't do anything about your situation. You know, like here's, here's a tissue, a shoulder to cry on. That's nice. It's care. But they've got no capacity to do anything. That's not your father. 
your father's capable of all things. He cares for you and he's capable of all things. Your father in heaven, that's who you pray to. And once you see God like that, once you approach God like that as your father in heaven, uh, it really transforms your prayers. But first, uh, you start longing for what your father longs for. It changes what's in your heart. So you pray, hallowed be your name. A name there is about God's character, right? the, the, the glory of who God is. Uh, if you're reading in Exodus 34, God uh, reveals his name to Moses. And it says, the Lord came down in the cloud. This is Exodus 34, verse 5, if you want to look it up later on. The Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with Moses and proclaimed his name to him. He passed in front of Moses proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Right? God, God's name, you get the idea. It's, it's the full glory of who he is. The, the wonder of his character. Right? So in that sense, God's name is already hallowed. It's holy. God is already holy. He's, he's lifted up. He's exalted. He's set apart from anyone and everyone. But not everyone sees that, do they? Not everyone sees just how wonderful our Father is, his glory. And so we pray that that more and more people would willingly honour our Father's name. That's what we long for. Honour his name as he deserves. We we long for his kingdom to come. God's kingdom, that's his rule over the whole world. And of course, just as God's name's already holy, so also God is already king over the world, whether people acknowledge it or not. But we also know, like the opening chapters of Matthew's gospel, that when Jesus came as God's king, like God's king on earth, it was like a special breaking in of God's kingdom, the light shining in the darkness. So Jesus called people to follow him and experience the blessings of kind of living under God's rule. So when we pray this prayer, your kingdom come, we're praying that that God's kingdom would grow in depth. You're praying that that, uh, God's kingdom would grow in depth in the lives of those who are already members of his kingdom. That that people like you and I, if you're a Christian, we keep working out, how does being a part of God's kingdom shape our entire life? That's God's kingdom growing in depth. Uh, But we're also praying that it would grow in breadth, right? That more and more people would surrender to Jesus as king and know the, the blessings of his kingdom. Right, that's, this is, these are our longings. Right? If you're a child of God, uh, you long for your Father's name to be hallowed, for his kingdom to come, and for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Right? Our Father's name's already holy, uh, he, he's already king over the world, and his will is already being done in heaven perfectly. All the time. There's no sin, no foolishness in heaven. His will is done perfectly all the time. But, but, and so that heaven's perfect, right? So we long for that to happen more and more on earth. So this world, the world that we live in, becomes more and more heavenly, more and more like heaven. I see, lots of people know the words of this prayer, I think. Like even if you don't go to church very much, you probably might, well, you might know the words of this prayer, right? It's pretty easy to, to parrot them off. But I hope you can see that if you genuinely pray this prayer, uh, it's really a sign that your whole life has been transformed. Even the, the deepest longings of your heart. 
And the key to it is that as a child of God, your deepest longings are no longer self-centered, but God-centered. That revolution's happened where you see that this world no longer, no longer revolves around you, but around God. And so you don't long to see your name glorified, I don't know, on some business card or certificate or, or conference. You know, I was thinking about this, like there's a kind of like, uh, oh, maybe one day I'll get, to, I'll get to speak at that conference or I'll be invited into that, that group, you know, with those church planners whose, whose churches are like, you know, cracking the 500 barrier, you know, like, like, like the, this is in us, isn't it? A desire for our name to be glorified. But if you're a child of God, you long to see your father's name glorified, not your name. Oh, yeah, you don't long to see your little kingdom grow. So you can have more power or control or influence. No, you long to see God's kingdom grow. And you don't long to see your will be done. Always kind of preoccupied with your rights and your ways and, and getting really frustrated if other people don't listen to you. No, no, no. A child of God uh, longs to see their father's will done. That's the deepest longing of that heart, right? Uh, so, so that's our God and our longings. Uh, in the second half of the prayer, Jesus addresses our needs. And the common theme in this whole second half is really that uh, our prayers should express our humble dependence on our Father in every area of our life. Uh, so first, we're dependent on our Father for our uh, daily physical needs. We, we pray, give us today our daily bread. Like bread there is not just bread, like if you're gluten-free and you're like, it's really hard for me to find bread. You know, like it's not just bread, right? It's, it's, it represents everything that uh, we need day by day to preserve our physical lives, right? It's acknowledging our dependence for food, water, rest, health, shelter, peace, right? everything. Uh, so this prayer, if you pray it regularly, it constantly reminds you that your life is very fragile. Every breath you take is a gift from God. Right? You need to pray that, that God would sustain your life every day. That's what that prayer's about. Right? It doesn't mean that you kind of kick back and expect God to miraculously deliver food to your door every night. Right? I prayed in the morning, God, you know, give us today a daily bread. It's getting kind of 7 o'clock, 8 o'clock. God, you're not answering the prayer. You know? Go out and get a job, right? Like God off usually answers this prayer by providing us a job so we can earn some money, so we can buy some food. That's how God usually answers this prayer. But in the midst of that, where we humbly come before our Father, praying that, that he would provide for our daily physical needs. And just as we're dependent on God for our physical needs, our kind of physical well-being, uh, we're also dependent on him for our spiritual needs, our, our spiritual well-being. That's why in verse 12, Jesus says, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. I did, just incidentally, I'll kind of move on to say, incidentally, notice that as Christians we believe that there are things that are true physically. Right? You, you say, uh, in general, you'll be more physically healthy if you eat than if you don't. Right? That's kind of a physical law. right? As, but as Christians we see that it's not just in the physical world that that's true, but in the spiritual world. In general, in fact always, You'll be more spiritually healthy if you forgive than if you don't. This is, a key, this is about spiritual health. You'll be more spiritually healthy if you're generous rather than greedy. You'll be more spiritually healthy if, um, if you're kind of uh, calm and self-controlled rather than angry all the time. Right? There are all sorts of ways, like uh, th things that influence our spiritual health. 
and forgiving others is one of them. And you see here that Jesus is uh, using accounting language. So for anyone who's studied business or is an accountant, uh, you'll connect with this, right? He's using accounting language uh, to describe sin. He's saying every time you sin, uh, you accumulate this debt uh, to God. And what would be fair, right? If you've got debts, the the fair thing is, the just thing is, uh, that you would pay off those debts yourself. But the the incredible news of the gospel is not only that this is the amazing news, uh, is that God in Christ, Christ's death on the cross, has paid off all our debts for us. Every bit of that debt has been paid off. So God is free to forgive us. He can still be just and forgive us uh, because our debts have been paid in full. Now, I suspect if you're here and you're a Christian, uh, you, you're probably okay with this bit. Well, you, I hope uh, you confess your sins regularly, you, you trust in Christ for forgiveness, uh, you embrace God's forgiveness in Christ. Maybe it's the next bit that's harder, isn't it? Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. That's harder. It's expanded in verses 14 and 15, right? Which basically say that our Father in heaven will forgive us if we forgive others. And now I want to be really clear on what Jesus is not saying here. He's not saying that that somehow uh, your forgiveness of other people earns God's forgiveness. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying that, that people's sins against you, which might have really, really hurt you, he's not saying that those sins aren't important. Right? He's not minimizing that. You know how important they were? So important he had to die on the cross for them. The Son of God torn apart on the cross. Right? That's how important they were. So he's not saying people's sins against you aren't important. And he's not saying you have to be fully reconciled to everyone in your life if you're going to receive God's forgiveness. Right? There's a difference between forgiveness and reconciliation. Right? But he is saying that if you really understand the depth of your own sin the, and the glory of God's forgiveness, uh, you'll be usually willing to forgive others. That should be the normal course of events for people living as a part of God's kingdom. Right? If God's kind of opened your eyes to see just how much you're in debt to him, right? that, that massive debt piling up, if you, if you see that, uh, that that's there because of your sin and that instead of making you pay off that debt, God has graciously paid it off for you in Christ. If, if you really see that, right? if, you, if you understand that, how can you be someone who makes other people pay for their sins? Well, you, you think Christ's death on the cross isn't sufficient payment? You think you've got to exact a bit more payment yourself? But remember the the parable of the unforgiving servant. Later on in this gospel, Matthew 18, Jesus says in verse 32, the master called in his servant and he said, you wicked servant, I cancelled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. And then Jesus says, verse 35, this is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from the heart. That's pretty confronting, isn't it? Right? But, but your massive debt to God has been completely forgiven, paid in full by the blood of Christ. So you shouldn't make your brother or sister, your, your husband or wife, your children or parents, you shouldn't make them pay by holding on to unforgiveness. 
You should forgive knowing that Jesus has paid the price for their sins just as he did for your sins. He's paid the price. And that's really hard to do. And it's real, as I said, it's quite unhealthy to hold on to unforgiveness spiritually. And so we come before our Father every day saying, Father, please forgive me for my debts and please help me to forgive my debtors. Give me strength to do that. And finally we pray and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. Right? This is not our physical needs or oh, it is our spiritual needs kind of but I'm separating it. Kind of, it's a bit more about our moral needs. And Use that language. Right? Uh, like if you're a Christian, uh, you know that the penalty for your sin has been paid. Right? We've just heard about that. The debt has been paid in full. Uh, and you know that you've been set free, at least to some extent, from the power of sin. Right? You've died with Christ. You've been raised with Christ. Now you, you can actually live in a way that pleases God. But you need a whole lot of help. A whole lot of help. And there's enemies working against you. And so you pray that your caring and capable father would protect you from the evil one that he would deliver you from the evil one as, as he seeks to lead you into sin every day. So we've got to be alert to that. We've got to pray about that. And so there it is. That's what I think praying like a Christian looks like. And remember I started, I said uh, that most of our problems with prayer, uh, our kind of prayerlessness, they can be traced back to, to one of three things. A distorted picture of God, a distorted picture of ourselves, and a distorted picture of prayer. Sometimes if we're firing on all cylinders, we've got all those things going at once, and then that's really great for our prayer lives. Sorry, it's the sarcasm, but uh, you know, like that's not a great mix of things. You're not going to pray much. Right? But this passage addresses those things. Right? The, the, the religious hypocrite, what's their picture of God? They're, they're treating God like a, a commodity, a tool to be used by them to stroke their own ego. That's not a Christian picture of God. The, the, the pagan babbler that Jesus uh, refers to, they, they're picturing God like, more like the force in Star Wars. You know, the force that they think, if, if they can just pray with enough words in the right way and formula and combination, if they can just kind of unpick the blessings of God, uh, they'll be able to channel God. They'll be able to channel the force. They'll be able to manipulate God uh, into blessing them. As if God's, I said this to someone the other day, God's some kind of cosmic piñata and you've just got to hit him in the right way and all the blessings will pour out. You know, like, like, that's not a Christian prayer. Right? That both those pictures are very distorted pictures of God and of us and of prayer. And we can easily slip into them. So we have to allow the truth of Jesus' words here to, to, to reshape our distorted pictures of God. Uh, until we actually see God, uh, we approach him as our caring and capable Father in heaven. We come boldly before him, secure in the fact that he loves us, that he's eager to hear our prayers, that he delights to hear our prayers. Right? We've got to allow Jesus' words to, to reshape our picture of ourselves. Like some Christians still see themselves as a dirty, rotten sinner that God would never want anything to do with. That's not you. You've been cleansed of your sin. Your debt has been paid. You're a dearly loved child of God. So you've got to change that. If you want to pray, if you want to come boldly before God, you can't, you, you've got to see yourself in line with the truth of the Scriptures. And we've got to uh, allow these words to reshape our picture of prayer. 
seeing it as a personal encounter between us and our Father where we're humbly expressing our longings to Him, our longings that He would be glorified and humbly expressing our needs to Him. So let me pray. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus' words here about prayer. We thank you that He warns us about ways of praying that are just not helpful uh, that encourage us to think about you and ourselves and, and the whole activity of prayer uh, in, in ungodly and ways just that aren't fitting for your kingdom. And we thank you for the clarity Jesus gives us about uh, those three things. And we pray that we would be increasingly clear that, that you are our Heavenly Father, that you care for us and that you're capable of all things. Uh, We pray that uh, you would work this revolution in our lives where we're no longer longing primarily for ourselves, uh, but we're we're longing to to see you glorified and uh, to see more and more people acknowledge you. And I pray, Father, that you would give us the humility to come before you and acknowledge our needs in in every part of our lives, our dependence on you. Uh, We pray in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.